Hi, everybody. I'm John Donvan, host and moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates, which I'm sure you knew since you're tuning into this podcast and you like our debates. But this is not going to be a podcast, strictly speaking, as a debate. Instead, this summer here at Intelligence Squared, we're doing something a little bit different. We're going to take a look at issues that surround the mission that we've set for ourselves, which is to raise the level of public discourse in America today. And usually, as you know, we do this directly head on by bringing you a balanced and thoughtful debate on the issues that shape the day. And we do so uh, in a very formal way with rules and with an insistence on civility and with an insistence on logic and fact. That's the essence of the kind of debate that we put on. But for the next few weeks, we're going to be doing this other thing. I'm going to be sitting down with a series of guests in a studio, not on our debate stage, but again in a studio where we will have a conversation about the state of America's public discourse and also how our guests themselves are working to bring civility and substance back into our national conversations. We're calling this series the Discourse Disruptor Series. And we'll be featuring guests like former ACLU head Nadine Strassen and NYU law professor Thane Rosenbaum, who are both with me now in the studio. So to kick off this special summer series, we're going to be talking about a topic we've debated a number of times here at Intelligence Squared, and that is the tension between hate speech and free speech. Um, again, this is not a debate. We're not looking for a winner or a loser, but we're looking for one intelligent, thought-provoking discussion. So let's get started. Nadine and Thane, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you. And we're thrilled to be kicking off the summer series by having this conversation with you. Nadine, um, IQ2 listeners are well familiar with your work because you've debated with us a couple of times already. But for people who may not know that, you're a professor at New York Law and the former president of the ACLU and very recently the author of a book I just finished reading, Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. Thanks um, for reading it. <laughs> it's a pleasure. And again, thanks for joining us. And Thane, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thank you, John. Um, down the road, we're hoping that you're going to be one of our debaters on stage, but it's great to have you in this conversation. Uh, you're a novelist. You're an essayist. You are also a law professor. You're at NYU. And you have a book coming out uh, titled The High Cost of Free Speech, Rethinking the First Amendment. Do John, I need to correct that? Yes, John. It's actually now called Saving Free Speech Ellipsis from Itself. Ah, I like that. It's a little punchier. So um, both of you very, very interested and well-versed in this topic of free speech and the issue that we're going to at least start with today, which is um, the challenge of of dealing with responding to what is being called hate speech. And the word hate is in the title of your book, Nadine. I, I want to start with... Whether we even know what we're talking about and do we all agree when we use the term hate speech, what that means? Absolutely not. Everybody uses the term hate speech to describe and decry and attempt to silence and stigmatize whatever ideas they dislike. So if you pay attention to how people use that term, you will see that it has been used against messages as varying as simply the word Trump chalked on sidewalks and against Black Lives Matter activism. Indeed, even the phrase free speech has been denounced as so-called hate speech on some college campuses. 
Now, where the law stands on this is really important, and that is that the United States Supreme Court has refused to recognize any category of speech based on its hateful or hated content and said, therefore, that speech is unprotected. But what's really important to recognize is that a lot of speech that conveys hateful messages, especially on the basis of race, religion, gender, and so forth, uh, that that can be punished, not solely because we deplore its content, but if in a particular context, it directly causes certain serious, specific, imminent harm, such as targeted harassment or bullying, intentional incitement to imminent violence, true threats that put a reasonable person in fear of being attacked. So what's important to recognize, John, is that a lot of speech with hateful messages that people think should be suppressed is already subject to suppression when it threatens and causes the most direct harm. Isn't isn't hate, though, in the eyes of the beholder? And by the way, what's wrong with hating? Don't Do we not have a right? I'm taking this totally out of the speech issue right now, but, but there seems to be an implication that to hate is a bad thing. Uh, is that something that all the religions agree on necessarily? Well, Nadine usually is right, and she is yet again. Um, uh, what, what's passing for hateful in our modern culture is anything that offends a person who then redirects it by saying, the fact that I'm offended by it suggests that you must hate, hate me. That's the only reason you would have said it mm-hmm. as a form of attack. So Nadine is quite right in saying it's amazing what now falls into the category of hate because it really simply constitutes something that a person it feels offended by, insulted, threatened by, and therefore the only reason it was delivered to me was for that message. And and, and even something that somebody disagrees with, like a political message. Which goes back to this idea of safe spaces, right? To say what we're seeing on college campuses, I need to be coddled and protected from anything disturbing. If it disturbs me, if I'm discomforted by it, uh, I think I have a right to be protected by it, and you have attacked me with your hatefulness. This is what makes it difficult for free speech enthusiasts and goddesses, in this case with Nadine, because it makes it an impossible you know, straw man, because if it's really based on what makes you unhappy or uncomfortable or insulted, then everything is essentially off limits. And but, you, you were about to say hate itself. Yes, is- but John, going back to your point, Right. I mean, hate itself can be considered neutral, right? Mm -hmm. The question is the point that Nadine makes, and it's certainly a part of my new book, uh, Saving Free Speech from Itself, which is harmful speech that derives, that is also considered hateful speech or that comes out of hate speech. The real term of art really should be speech that causes harm. Uh, I would add, if I may think, that directly and imminently causes harm because all speech can potentially cause harm. And indeed, a lot of speech that is offensive and upsetting, that causes emotional and psychological harm of some sort. And I think our society and our legal system has deliberately said we choose not to punish speech to protect you from that kind of harm, not that we deny the possibility that that harm can occur. I mean, take, for example, I have friends who seriously 
honestly went into psychological despair and took to their beds because of statements that the president of the United States made about policy issues. I don't deny that they are suffering harm from his words, but I do agree that that is not a kind of harm that should be punishable. But th- this is where Nadine and I would part, I think. Well, before before we get there, yeah. because I w- actually want to dig into where the two of you part, I just want to go back one more time to the genesis of the concept yeah. of hate speech. So w- w- where, where did we begin to have the idea that s- something that causes harm changes when it has the dimension of an attitude by the person who's doing the harm or advocating the harm? In other words, speech that causes harm and hate speech became the same thing when and how? Well, I would just say that what Nadine and I are saying isn't how it's even taught in law schools because free speech absolutists don't even think that harm should be the standard, mm-hmm. right? So, so when she says, well, incitement of imminent lawful lawlessness, uh, true threats, some people would say that's different from harm, mm-hmm. right? That those are a different set of categories. I would add harm as a category. But these prescribed categories that the Supreme Court has always had, fighting words, obscenity, uh, you know, uh, in this case, true threats, incitement of imminent lawlessness, those, Nadine is saying, well, you know, those things can lead to harm. And so because they can lead to harm, we've always centrally protected it. Harm was always included. Wait, wait, but wait. I would say that the, what she did, how she described it is not how many First yeah. Amendment scholars would say. They say they would think she would go too far on that. Uh-huh. It's interesting to but be called a moderate. Right, but, exactly. But, the, the, but, gen, the genesis of, of the idea that if the person hitting somebody over the head mm-hmm. hits them over the head because they're angry at them because mm-hmm. he, he or she yep. cheated on the person, that's one thing. But if you hit them over the head because you have an ideological mm-hmm. attitude towards the group mm-hmm. that they're belonging to makes it something different. And I'm looking for, when was that concept well, but formulated? That's, that, that's hate crimes. Yeah. That's a whole different thing. Yeah, Nadine it, can it, there, there, are lo- there are so many different I, I ideas. I understand are, we're not talking about yeah. speech. I'm trying. Yeah. I'm just trying to understand the yeah. the application of the notion of hate to the whole concept. Well, first of all, the attitude or the motivation or the intention with which one carries out an act has always been relevant to determining a whether it is punishable in the first place mm-hmm. and b how serious an infraction it is in the second place so the idea of mental state has always been a concept of our legal system going back to the, our uh, english forebears specifically with respect to speech uh, john from i'm not a historian but from studying the attempts to punish what we now call hate speech and by the way most people use it to centrally refer to speech that conveys discriminatory or stereotypical ideas on the basis of identity characteristics. As far as I can tell, there were efforts to do that as early as the beginning of the 20th century. Not in, nec- in the United States? In the United States. Not ne- and and um, in European countries, probably starting after World War II, as part part of the commitment to universal human rights and to protect people against ideas that were seen as potentially leading to genocide. When there were debates over the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the International Covenant on uh, uh, protecting against the International Covenant for Civil and Political Rights, uh, the Soviet Union back in the uh, first 
first half of the 20th century was proposing that there be restrictions on hate speech. And interestingly enough, Eleanor Roosevelt, who was the United States... Was it, was it called hate speech at that time? It, that, I, I don't think was the term that was used. It was mm-hmm. probably couched in terms of defamation. Mm-hmm. Group defamation was the legal uh, category, uh, legal label that was uh, used at the time. But it was the same kind of concept. And interestingly enough, the United States representative in those negotiations, Eleanor Roosevelt, along with leaders with from a lot of other democratic countries, recognized that although it might sound very appealing as a potential tool to uh, protect traditionally discriminated against groups and protect against genocide, that this was an inherently subjective tool that could be used by oppressive governments, including those behind the Iron Curtain. I think that it's also important to think about this as a post-World War II uh, uh, aspect of thinking, rethinking speech. Uh, the Europeans were way ahead of us on this. For instance, hate speech is, uh, unlike the way that Nadine described the courts here, taking hatefulness and saying that is clearly not a category of its own that is impermissible under or unprotected by the First Amendment. In Europe, they've never had this problem. Uh, And this is, I would say, a post-Holocaust issue that they would say, look, we really understand where hatefulness goes Mm -hmm. and we understand it in a way that the Americans seem to be insulated from it. I mean, they they look upon us as a bunch of nut jobs. They say (laughs) neo-Nazis marching in Skokie, we would march them straight to jail. And, it, and look what that's done to yeah. quell anti-Semitism in Germany, France, Britain, etc., not to mention other forms of hate crimes and discrimination. And I have to say, one of the, and Thane and I both have uh, come from families of Holocaust survivors, um, thank goodness, and we're both equally, of course, <laughs> committed to combating Nazism and other forms of hatred. And what I found really interesting as I did the research for my book was to look at how these laws that I I have absolutely no doubt had the best of intentions in the hands of democracies, not in the hands of Soviets, perhaps. I find it interesting what Thane is saying about the Germans being ahead of us, because I had the impression from a glancing blow at history that after the Second World War, that American and British scholars had a lot to do with the constitutions that the, the that, that the constitution that was being written in Germany, and that through the efforts of denazification, which t- had many phases, that one of them was to make it illegal to have swastikas in public, et cetera, and that and that that impulse was injected into the conversation there by outsiders from the Allied side. I may be completely wrong about that. Well, it's true and not true. Uh It's not true in the sense that in Germany, their post-war, World War II constitutions invoke the words human dignity endlessly. comes up everywhere. Mm -hmm. It doesn't appear one time in the Constitution of the United States. Mm -hmm. I think it might appear one word in Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. There might be one, and Nadine shaking her head. All right, she's right. I don't think it appears at all. So Europeans have focused on human dignity. And I think that that, even though they may have been influenced by the American jurists and UK jurists, they were looking at something else. And when it came to hatefulness, when it came to what can happen to a group of vulnerable people within the society and how they can be literally eliminated, 
that there was an em- unbelievable focus. So the Germans, if you look at there, and this is true of many of these European post-war constitutions, the words human dignity matter. When Nadine said earlier, this is an area where I would disagree, when she said, hey, Thane, when we talk about harm, let's at least invoke the word imminent. Mm-hmm. It has to be imminent. Mm-hmm. And I would say, why, why does it have to be imminent? If, 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 I'm a, if I am, not, let's not use the word hater, but if I'm a harm producer with my words, I use weaponized words, and I want to spray paint in front of a house of Muslims, towel heads go home. And I'm going to put that up every single day. They'll paint it off, and I'll put it back That's there. already a crime. Right. I know, but it's a crime it's, in the same way that— It's vandalism, uh, it's not vandalism, exactly. perhaps. Except that burning a cross on an African-American's lawn is arson, but it's not just arson, right? Because the Supreme Court has said, well, the political aspect of it is an expressive message, and you're entitled to the message. You're not entitled to the fire, but you're entitled to the message. And, and I'm saying— why are you entitled to the message? Why, why is burning a cross the kind of message? Because I would say, from what even Nadine said, that's a, the exact example of what a true threat looks like to me. This is exactly what intimidation if and indignity... If it satisfies the definition of a true threat, I have absolutely no problem in punishing it. What's and, the defi- and that's, that definition tr- is clear? A truth, yes. It, I mean, obviously, how it applies in particular situations, people would disagree. But it's as with all of the Supreme Court's categories of speech that satisfy what's generally called the emergency standard. In other words, we're not punishing the speech just because we hate its message. We have to get beyond the content or the idea or the message and look at the context. If in a particular context it poses an imminent harm, including a true threat, and the word true or genuine is used as an adjective to distinguish it from the loose way that we use the word Mm -hmm. threat in everyday discourse. I feel threatened by the fact that Donald Trump is president, or I feel threatened by the fact that Milo Yiannopoulos is speaking on my campus. That is not a punishable true threat. A punishable true threat is when the speaker is targeting a small audience, a specific audience, and intends to instill a reasonable fear of harm. Create some fiction for a moment. A speaker would say what to this group to do what? Well, I I can give you an actual example, Mm -hmm. uh, and that is Charlottesville. When those neo-Nazis are marching and saying, you will not replace us, Jews will not replace us, you can imagine how I loathe that message, but that is not a true threat. However, when in context they are massing carrying uh, lighted torches and brandishing them at counter-demonstrators, I, if I were a counter-demonstrator, I think that I would feel a reasonable fear that I am facing harm. And by the way, to be punishable as a true threat, you do the speaker does not have to intend to carry out the harm. Our law sensibly recognizes that the reasonable fear that you're going to be subject to harm already uh, curtails your freedom, including your free speech. So the potential victim has a say in defining whether this is a That's real threat? That's why it's called uh, a reasonable fear. That means it's an objective standard, not a subjective one. So a thin-skinned person who feels frightened is not going to be protected, and that would be for the fact finder, the judge or the jury. It seems to me that the word imminent also could be fairly squishy. Do we mean in the next 10 minutes? Do we mean in the next day? Or the- do we mean a, a chain event of 
of ideas spreading and leading to something horrible happening in three months. It, it, it could be fairly squishy, but on the other hand, it is much less squishy than the standard that exists in uh, hate speech laws in other countries and that I believe Thane is advocating, which is that at some time in the future, if the expression could materialize in harm, and that's what the United States used to enforce in what we call the bad tendency test, that speech that might indirectly at some point in the future lead to harm could be punished. And that's why anti-war protesters were punished. That's why socialists and anarchists were punished. That's why civil rights demonstrators were punished. So now it's true. The tougher standards that we have now give some discretion to the courts, uh, but not nearly as much as uh, in other countries. But one one could reasonably say, and I don't mean reasonably under the legal standard, but one could reasonably say that bad ideas do have bad consequences, that bad Could things... Could have bad consequences. Sure. Because we have to recognize that it does not follow us the night the day because... Thane might say something that I think is a bad idea, uh, hypothetically, that that's going to have an impact on the world. Uh, And the idea of the emergency test and the imminent standard is if there is enough time to avert the potential negative consequences through debate and discussion, through law enforcement, then we have to use that. So let me tease out, and then I want to bring you in in just a second, but I I want to to tease out the, the clear dividing line on a particular issue here, which is that... Nadine, you you are satisfied with the current Supreme Court standard on what it takes to shut down or punish somebody who makes a hateful remark uh, or who, who is make, uh, indulging in hateful expression. And that standard in one to two sentences is, yeah, I know you're repeating yourself, but go for it. Speech can never be punished solely because we hate the content of its message or we find it to be hateful. It can only be punished when, in context, it directly poses certain specific imminent serious harm, such as a true threat or intentional incitement of imminent violence or targeted harassment. Okay, and Thane, your take on that and then go with it. Hate is not an idea. I don't know if this is what I ever... I mean, I, I adore her. <laughs> I do. I adore Nadine. But I think what we've done uh, over the years, really since the 1960s, in which we've really sort of changed what First Amendment law is about, uh, you know, the, the Founding Fathers, for instance, they did not think that, that... If you would have asked General Washington, for God's sakes, do you think you should be able to burn the American flag in front of a family that just lost a son in the war? What do you think General Washington would have said? The Founding Fathers understood that these right, the constitutional right to free speech needs to be balanced against other rights, that it doesn't trump other rights, and that this idea of citizenship the dignity of being able to live in a participatory democracy. You know, Lyndon Johnson said, you know, a man has the right to go off into the outside of his house with his children and has the right to not be humiliated. Now, Nadine would say, well, what does that mean? He might be humiliated. And I'm saying, I think content matters. And I think that we've credited anything that comes out of the mouth of a lunatic, no matter how the manner by which they stated it, and said, well, that's an idea. And you might not like the idea, but we can debate the idea. And I'm saying, no, if you have a problem with African-Americans, write an op-ed. If you have a problem with Jews, write, you know, try to elect a different congressman. We're uh, brandishing tiki torches 
as as Nadine would say at night, she said, well, the key thing there is the paramilitary fatigues and the tiki torches. And I'm saying, no, Jews will not replace us is enough. This idea, yes, it's more threatening that they had tiki torches. But I'm saying, what's your idea? Your idea is to do nothing other than to strip Jews of their dignity, their humanity, and their sense of security in their citizenship as an active member of our society. And how would you proscribe that? Well, you know, again, when Nadine says, well, you know, these reasonable tests are the objective standard, and I think we shouldn't run away from that objective standard. I think most people understand, juries would understand, fact finders would understand, when that setting in Charlottesville was there to intimidate, to threaten, to, to humiliate, to provide in extraordinary indignity and fear. And that's, you know, we, we tolerate all kinds of ambiguity in the law, right? Mm-hmm. We slip and fall case. We don't actually know if the person can run a marathon or they'll never walk again. So it's not the first time what we say to juries, you decide for us whether you think this violates the standard of what is permissible discourse. And I would say, again, this, uh, the, the idea that everything that out of the mouth of a lunatic is an idea and that therefore it should be protected instead of saying, what about the quality of discourse? But Spain, you know exactly what you consider to be hateful and punishable. But if you look at what has actually been punished, both in the United States before we adopted the emergency principle and in European and other democratic countries today, it is consistently disproportionately messages by those who are advocating for human rights and dignity, particularly of traditionally marginalized and oppressed minorities. And that is the critique that has been voiced over and over and over again in Germany and all of the other countries saying, you know, our anti-hate speech laws were fine in theory, but in practice, they are not they are not stopping the enormous discrimination and violence we have. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this, our first episode of Discourse Disruptors, presented by Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. Next week, our team is headed to Aspen, Colorado. We're going to be presenting a live Oxford-style debate in partnership with the Aspen Strategy Group. The topic's going to be U.S. relations with China. The actual resolution is, the recent U.S. policy toward China is productive. You can watch that live on iq2us.org next Friday, August 2nd at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's iq, the number 2, us.org. And again, that's next Friday. Now, back to our episode. I want to ask Thane, what, how would you write a law that stops the, um, the, the marchers even from having the march and, and, and uttering the slogans, or not stops, but punishes them. May I add a question? Yes. And how would you write it such that it would not apply to Martin Luther King marchers, which, as you know, were uh, uh, shut down in cities and states around this country on the same rationale, that it's threatening, it's offensive, it's insulting, it's defamatory, it's dangerous, subversive. Right. Well, I would say the first thing we should ask is, and I'll get to the, the answer to your question is, it may be as what Nadine is saying here, as well as in her book, is that we have overpunished in Europe, and that's the example, right? We punished, overpunished, and punished progressives that were that were actually to trying to speak out on behalf of marginalized, vulnerable groups. But I would think that I don't know if she would agree with this, but in the United States, we have demonstrably 
underpunished in the last 50 years. So from my perspective, we said, well, look, okay, here's the dark side of our, of our society. Our society is, again, neo-Nazis get to march, Klan uh, uh, get to burn crosses, uh, uh, a homophobic church group out of Kansas gets to disrupt the funerals of dead Marines by holding up signs that says God hates fags so that a man whose son was lost his life fighting for this country can't even say goodbye to his son uh, because we, we, we actually say eight to one. The Supreme Court said eight to one that this group had the First Amendment constitutional protections uh, to, to make that protest. So I just think, that, yes, it's true what Nadine says about Europe, but at least can we acknowledge that we've underpunished here, that we allow things to get through that, we, w- that many of us are uncomfortable with and say, I'm but, not... But it's, it's but, too... But be, be, okay, I just want to let him get to the sorry, second yeah, part, sorry. which how would, what, how would you handle it? What would the law be? Well, some of it is already there. Like, for instance, when Nadine says true threats, incitement to imminent law. But you want to go further. So how, what would right, be the Right. So, further? for instance, the fighting word standard mm. is something that we really don't invoke anymore. Mm. But words that in the language of the original court opinion, Shaplinsky, it's really, it actually says words that cause severe harm. You know, it talks about the... Harm, idea, harm defined how? Well, I mean, look, you know, this is the other thing that's important to remember before I go further, which is that... It, when when we made, when we discussed this in the 1960s, for instance, when Cohen versus California f- the draft, all of a sudden we said, well, that's a political statement. If you want to put f- the draft on your jean jacket, you should be able to do it because it's a political message. And if someone is offended about it, I'm sorry, that's the political message. But what we do know now from neuroscience, is, and this isn't even a question anymore, is that from indignity and harm, people get sick, not just emotionally sick. They get physically sick. Mm-hmm. And I have a whole chap, several chapters in my book about this idea that let's not run away from the science. The neuroscience is very clear. So it's not an abstraction anymore to say, well, you know, sticks and stones can break my bones. It's a, what kind of a legal system is based on a nursery rhyme? I mean, how did but we... But that's how did a we dis- straw person to mix metaphors. As I said earlier, nobody denies the harm. The question is, what are other ways to prevent the harm? Because the neuroscience and the mental health and psychological experts say that... You know, shielding people from upsetting words may actually not be beneficial to their mental health, that the best thing to do is to develop habits and skills of resilience because they are going to be exposed to all kinds of things that are deeply upsetting in the real world, and we're making them less able to withstand that. And and yet the law understands that punching somebody in the nose Mm -hmm. is criminal, Mm -hmm. and Thane is suggesting that punching them in the brain is real and and, and should be criminal. Uh, And in addition to the fact that there are other more effective ways of preventing and remediating that harm other than censorship, which many people think may be counterproductive because you're not going to forever shield somebody from exposure to ideas that are deeply upsetting. And I agree, have physiological, at least potential physiological, as well as uh, um, psychological dimensions. Look at the harm that is caused if we allowed government to punish any expression that is potentially upsetting or actually upsetting, upsetting. a huge amount, let's say actually upsetting, an enormous harm, an enormous percentage of speech by politicians, including government leaders and officials, 
is harmful. People have suffered psychic harm from listening to uh, political candidates and political officials. We cannot in this society punish speech on that rationale without completely ending both individual liberty and democracy. But those are ideas. Those qualify. I mean, I think of a politician, even though there are, there are policies that people would object to, if you're offended by the policies, that's something you have to tolerate because ideas, for Jews instance... Jews will not replace us is an idea no, thing. It's, not. it's a deeply despicable idea, but it's saying we want to get rid of the Jews. We want to expel them to Israel. Maybe we even want to expel them to death camps. It's an abhorrent, abominable idea, but it is an idea. And that's where we would differ. I don't think that's an idea that's, so if that's you're, purely an attack. So I mean, you're, you're purely trying to draw intended. a line between an attack so-called and an idea so-called. I don't think that we're, we should have such difficulties with this. We talk about a marketplace of ideas, but we say that in other marketplaces, we have to regulate food and drugs, other markets. But when it comes to uh, the marketplace of ideas, we couldn't possibly... Uh, there it's purely laissez-faire. And I'm well, saying... the Supreme Court has said that causing offense is an idea. It has said that expressly, so you obviously but, disagree uh, but, with but that. But offense is not the same for, as harm. For the lay person here, could you, either of you, explain why laws against defamation mm. exist mm-hmm. in this where, where the, obviously there's an implied harm there yes it's that, an actual harm so even under it's a, a tort which is a civil wrong uh, and the tort law standards are very strict you have to show that the speaker intended mm-hmm. to I- in issue a false statement that it injures somebody's reputation and the complainant has to demonstrate tangible economic harm as a result ah, of economic the economic here. Yeah, so See, it, that's the problem. That we, emotional we, the legal, injury is not right, enough to legal, recover. Right. I have an earlier book, The Myth of Moral Justice, in which I take this position. I said, you know, the legal system operates on purely the material, the tangible, the physical, or the objective. Mm-hmm. It has absolutely no interest in the internal, the invisible, the subjective. It is interested, right? Thane, but I, the, the uh, um, calibration that the court does is what is the cost of empowering government to punish expression that causes emotional, uh, intangible harm. We're not denying that the harm exists. We're saying that that there is more harm in empowering government to have that inevitably broad discretion to decide what will be punished and what will not be punished. And inevitably, a lot of what will be subject to punishment is speech that is critically important in a democratic republic. Debate about public policy issues, which are very contentious, very upsetting, and very harmful. But why can't we... But censorship is even more harmful. But why can't we insist that the manner in which your ideas are framed have to be done in such a way that there is mutual respect for other other citizens so that they don't feel threatened or harmed. Why is it that we're saying, why is it that we're saying, well, if we, if you 
claim you're trying to express something, mm-hmm. no matter how you claim it, if it's an expression, we'll grant it the category could, status could, of an idea. Could, could, could that really... be properly regulated, effectively regulated? Again, I think that we tolerate a lot of ambiguity in all other aspects of our legal system. And here we say we couldn't possibly do that instead of saying, no, we could. Why are we the only outlier in Western uh, democracies? When Why are the now Nadine's book points out, well, we shouldn't be so uh, tempted by what we see in Europe. But I still think that when we look at our democracy, what is it that we understand about freedom of expression, expression that no one else, no other well, society does. Critics, that they understand the harm that comes from there, certain there, delivery of speech. There are critics of hate speech laws in many in every country that has them, just as there are critics of right. free speech in, in our country. Um, but Thane, another point when you're suggesting that the manner of expression, you know, the the cruder attacks are going to be punishable, whereas if the same concept of denying equal dignity is expressed in polite discourse, it's going to be protected. I quote Henry Louis Gates in my book, who made this point eons ago when hate speech codes first emerged on college campuses, and he has continued to oppose them for this reason. By definition, the law is only going to be able to reach the crudest, most vulgar manifestation of racism and anti-Semitism. And yet, you know, what's couched in an idea, oh, affirmative action is bad because it, look at the difference in IQ tests and test scores. He gives that specific example, and it's very polite, and it has statistics. And that causes more harm precisely because it's more acceptable. It's got the veneer of science. And so even if you are in terms of your ultimate goal of protecting the dignity of people, I think you're drawing the wrong line, quite frankly. It's protecting the dignity and punishing those who are abusing a right to free speech by trampling on the extreme sensitivities and citizenship of another. So there's a power differential you're you're saying here. Absolutely. But But if there's a power differential, but the idea is expressed in more polite, scientific, social scientific language, it's not going to be punished, and it could do even more harm. But why do you have to defend yourself from someone who is essentially saying that you essentially have no right to exist? We don't care about you. We don't want you here. That's what we're asking. We're literally asking vulnerable groups, look, you can respond. You have a voice. And the answer is, no, you don't. There is a power differential, and a person shouldn't be asked or required to defend their existence. I want to say to listeners to this podcast, if you like this conversation, um, we have done a number of debates on issues related to speech. We've done, uh, here are the resolutions. Liberals are stifling intellectual diversity on campus. Freedom of expression must include the license to offend. Trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. Free speech is threatened on campus. Individuals and organizations have a right to unlimited spending on their own political speech. Constitutional free speech principles can save social media companies from themselves. So there's a whole range of topics we've gone into, so I want to recommend that you go to all of those. And the last one I mentioned about social media companies, I want to shift to to the world of, to, to the Twitterverse and Facebook. Okay, let's all concede the First Amendment doesn't apply to the rules that these companies set for themselves. We all understand that. It's not a First Amendment issue. But these companies need to make decisions themselves about what their policies are going to be. And I want to ask you, Thane, uh, Facebook is okay with Holocaust deniers denying the Holocaust. They don't want to get involved. They don't care that it's not true. They recognize 
at some level, they're recognizing the right of Holocaust deniers to deny. What is your take on that? What do you think Facebook should be doing? Well, frankly, I thought what Mark Zuckerberg said was so shocking, and it made me concerned that, in fact, he never did finish college at Harvard, and it's a shame that he didn't. Because his actual justification, I mean, he could have served a couple more years, and he might not have said something so ridiculous. He said, we're not going to censor people who are simply misinformed. That's what he said. Holocaust deniers are just misinformed. And I think we're talking about something very different. This is not about an absence of information, Mr. Zuckerberg. This is about people that not just hate, but want to eliminate another group of people. By doing so, by denying their history, by denying their trauma, uh, by trivializing uh, the, the attempt to actually exterminate them, and by doing so, essentially sanctioning, adopting the idea that, well, look, these people don't matter. And so, therefore, if you want to peddle these ideas of the elimination of Jews, you're free to do it on this platform. And what I think they should be saying is, no, this is, it's not that it's a pure platform, but its original purpose that was initiated in a dorm room in Harvard was to sort of create a network of social life that advances everything. And in a university setting, the same thing, advances truth, advances science, enriches our culture, that as a, as a platform, I would hope that that's what Mark Zuckerberg would think Facebook would be about. Instead, we're seeing, well, you know, it helped, uh, it helped uh, 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 deceive an electric and perhaps steal an election. And in some cases, it, it, you, it is being used as a platform to peddle ideas that are not really ideas. They're just pure expressions of unadulterated hatefulness toward another for the purposes of eliminating them, stripping them of their citizenship and their dignity. And you want Facebook to do what about that? I think that they should be required to do what, that, what European countries do, which is to not to hesitate to say, we do censor, we have a purpose here. And this purpose is not being furthered by what you're submitting. Nadine, you are shaking your head so hard on this one. <laughs> well, starting with Holocaust denial, and again, as the daughter of a Holocaust survivor, I deeply disagree with that message. But I think the most effective way to refute the Holocaust deniers is let them peddle their nonsense and then be subject to debate and criticism. And a lot of evidence suggests that it's a much more effective way uh, to instill actual appreciation for history for people to hear the pro and con there, arguments. There. Even beyond that, when we're talking about the, the inherent problem with empowering anyone to punish ideas because they are seen as being hateful or denying dignity is that it is so inherently irreducibly subjective. As you said earlier, John, hate is an emotion. What one person hates, somebody else loves. And the very same problems that we've seen with governments enforcing anti-hate speech laws, with colleges enforcing anti-hate speech codes, occurs with the social media companies. Namely, they are at best arbitrary and at worst discriminatory. So we've had constant complaints from both ends of the political spectrum. The conservatives keep complaining that their messages are being disproportionately censored. But human rights activists and social justice activists are consistently complaining that their messages of protest are being censored as hate speech. USA Today recently had a huge story and the title was, you know, playing off driving while black. It was Facebook while black. 
track how we are getting zucked because they can't take into account context. So if somebody is protesting that she's been subject to hate speech and she's posting it to seek support, to seek denunciation, that is itself being punished as hate speech. If somebody is satirizing, these are real examples, somebody is satirizing hate speech, that is punished as hate speech. So again, it may be very well intended, but ultimately it is not ending hatred and it may well be so is, is your argument pragmatic or philosophical? Both, because the as I indicated earlier, the First Amendment standards, which are very uh, closely mirrored by broad international human rights free speech principles, they take a pragmatic approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is not absolute protection for free speech, either in our law or the law of any other country or internationally. Government may punish speech, but only if the punishment is necessary to promote some countervailing goal, including, of course, ending violence or discrimination. So the devil is in the details. Does this particular restriction actually promote that goal? Is there another way of doing so that doesn't restrict speech as much? I wonder whether neo-Nazi is watching, listening to this podcast, is listening to Nadine and chuckling. Because we're this podcast itself is the very definition of a rarefied atmosphere. We are in New York City. <laughs> we are on a podcast that is produced by Intelligence Squared. We're sitting in a podcast. The podcast is being de- perform, uh, uh, recorded, brought, yeah. recorded uh, in Carnegie Hall. Uh, how rarefied an experience is this? Nadine then says, well, you know, what I really think we want to do is if the neo-Nazis have a message, we should debate them. They don't want to debate you, Nadine. No, we can counter-demonstrate, too. Do you it's think not that, just debates. Did, is, did the Trump administration, if anything, mm-hmm. has anything that came out of the Trump administration, is that there is a large segment of people in the mm-hmm. United States that are not reading the New York Times and could care less about mm-hmm. CNN, and that they're not, they're, they're, to them, they're not interested in a debate. They're interested in the information that reinforces the confirmation bias that Jews are terrible, African Americans are terrible, certain people who are not like us are terrible, and we and should eliminate th- them. And, and I'm saying, by punishing, I don't think these people are going to be debated. I don't think these and people... And you think by punishing them and silencing those they listen to that they are going to adopt values no, of humanity I'm and sending, dignity? No, I'm saying we're sending a very, very it's strong... Going to have a, it's going to have a counterproductive effect. It's going to make them even more angry and even more alienated. Dignity matters. Citizenship matters. Our obligation is not to the lunacy of people who hate and want to eliminate, but it's for the people who actually want to participate in representative democracy and live in the United States and advance our uh, our culture, our politics, our science, and our education. We, and we absolutely have to pass and enforce laws against every kind of discrimination and discriminatory violence. And I do support laws against hate crimes, which we haven't really talked to about. And I am very concerned that in this country, there's a lot of evidence that we have under-resourced FBI and state and local law enforcement in terms of going after domestic <laughs> extremists and terrorists and, and and, and white nationalists. Have either of you ever been, for, for the for the particular stances you're both taking, ever been accused by anybody of expressing hate speech? Not to my knowledge. No. no. I, I'm curious because we, we've had debaters on our stage who have been deplatformed in other settings. Uh, Charles Murray has debated with us and uh, Heather McDonald. 
uh, both of them have been um, gone to college campuses to speak, and and they were perceived by certain sectors of the student body to have engaged in hateful speech, and so. Oh well, then I, I should. I don't even take that back. That has happened to me repeatedly because I've written essays that uh, that support Israel, and so those essays have been. I have gone to many university campuses where people have objected not to anything I'm saying here on, on Intelligence Squared, but the mere fact that I've written essays supporting Israel and also at times calling attention to Israel's moral failures as well. But the fact that the fact that I'm supporting Israel in any capacity puts me in that category. And John, you've raised a very serious question because people who have advocated exactly the same positions I'm advocating for free speech and against restriction of hate speech beyond what is already punishable in U.S. law, uh, many of them have been deplatformed and attacked. So I took many proactive efforts before I speak on any campus. I send letters in advance to all of the minority student groups, mm. women's groups, and so forth, and I explain that how uh, how important, I mean, the main message of my book is how we should resist hate. I strongly, strongly am committed to the same goals of dignity and equality. It's a difference in strategy. And but, so but, far, but that seems to have, have you're, Because you're acting preemptively, but you... you pro, sorry, proactively, but you worry that that might Absolutely. be... Absolutely. So that's interesting to me because it suggests that if we did live in a regime where there was some sort of, um, you know, some sort of stricter limitations on what some people consider hateful speech, you might, might both be Absolutely. subject to those. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would no think, Nadine, in particular, because you would say, this is a woman who's dedicated herself to free speech, and many people, especially on college campus, is going to say, hey, do you understand with all this freedom of speech that you've been advancing, you've, al- you've enabled people mm. to cause a lot of harm and mm-hmm. hurt mm-hmm. because of the freedom of speech, the liberty that you've mm-hmm. granted them. So, Thane, which side are you on on this one? If, if... I'm, I'm saying, again, I'm referring to harm. Look, I think, here's a good example. The Muhammad cartoons, right? The Danish cartoons. Uh, that, to me, is there, what's embodied in them are ideas. Any religion is subject to criticism. And if you're insulted by it, I'm sorry, there are ideas within the cartoon. So I, I would not, I think people are surprised to hear that given the book that I'm writing, they would think, well, surely uh, he must think that the cartoons should have been censored. No, I don't. The difference, and I think this has come up in this discussion with Nadine, is I look at ideas as qualified. And for instance, nor would I say on a university campus, if someone said, I come from a family of of communists for a hundred years, communists since the day of Karl Marx. And I was very, very hurt that I walked into a political science class the other day and someone was criticizing communism. We would laugh at that idea, right? And similarly, yes, the, uh, the tenets of a religion, especially a religion that holds itself out also as a political movement, has to be subject to criticism. And the insult that comes from that is not something that should be protected under the First Amendment. But I would say that, again, threatening, causing indignity, providing an environment where Muslims were feeling actually threatened, not upset, not offended, but threatened is something entirely different. You don't think the standard of the law that you would like to have in place could, in fact, end up impinging on your ability to make to write in support of Israel where that support of Israel might be seen by another group as harmful to them? 
No, I don't. You, because if there's a polit- there's an idea there that is, okay. but this is the politics of the Middle East. And th- these are ideas that one can debate and they can be upset by, but they are the politics of the Middle East, which is something very different from anti-Semitism or anti-Semitism disguised as anti-Zionism. John, the point that you're making is excellent. It is that the devil is in the details. And one of the things I do in my book is to go through every single standard that has been proposed or is embodied in hate speech laws in other countries and asked the reader, would you, would you want to subject your cherished idea to this so-called standard? Now, you rightly pointed out that even the tough emergency standard that we enforce in the United States already gives some discretion. You seem to think maybe too much discretion to judges. But if you go be and to government officials or Facebook moderators, but if you go beyond that, and I don't even know what formulation Thane is using, beyond a true threat that it might threaten or it undermines dignity, I mean, that would literally, it, my, my mind is boggling at what would not be subject to censorship. And precisely because we recognize the structural racism and sexism that so many studies have shown are deeply embedded in the criminal justice system and the civil justice system in the United States, where drug laws and other laws are discriminatorily, disproportionately enforced against people of color. Why in the world would we want to give the infinitely more discretionary power to pick and choose speech that offends dignity or harms dignity uh, to the enforcers. We can predict that it's going to be enforced not in a way that empowers those who are marginalized. It's funny, this is a nightmare for progressives, because on the one hand, you know, progressives would say, well, when Roe v. Wade and its progeny, the right to privacy was read into the Constitution, conservatives say, well, it's not there. Where did you come up with that? And we say, well, look what, look what this has accomplished. Look at all the rights that have emanated from this right to privacy. Thane Rosenbaum sits in a, uh, a podcast with John and Nadine and says, well, what if we read in a right to dignity into the Constitution to say that, yes, a dignity is as important as a right to privacy that should be read in to the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And that dignity means that a person should not be able to go outside with their children and risk feeling humiliated and threatened and essentially driven underground to know that his or her citizenship is meaningless because another person or another entity hates them so much that wants them eliminated and that the only thing they can do to defend themselves is to argue for their own existence. Why? What kind of a citizenship is that? What are we what are we offering anyone? If that's what we're saying, we're literally saying we are privileging the rights of a hateful speaker over innocent, marginalized, vulnerable people who just want to go about their day. Who want to have their right to free speech to protest, and they are the ones who have the the minority groups, by definition, are the ones who have the biggest stake in a robust right to free speech, which is exactly why, throughout the 20th century, all of the civil rights groups, up, including the Jewish groups, as well as the NAACP, opposed laws against hate speech because they knew it was their speech in support of equal justice and dignity but, that would be most threatened under those but, laws. But the interesting thing, given the fact that we're here with Nadine Strassen, which is really what's interesting, is that the ACLU itself, and she knows this after Charlottesville, mm-hmm. has now had second thoughts. 
there were 200... I've, I've read the same thing. Yeah, yeah. 200, 200 attorneys filed a petition mm-hmm. uh, to Romero, the director, mm-hmm. to say, hey, look, you know, is this what we're really about? The very same entity that represented the neo-Nazis in the mm-hmm. Skokie case and lost contributions from mm-hmm. not just Jewish donors, mm-hmm. from other people that said, what business did the ACLU have? Jewish lawyers representing neo-Nazis. Now, in the post-Charlottesville era, you have donors, board members, and the attorneys themselves saying, what are we doing? Aren't we really more interested in equality and progressive, uh, an, a progressive agenda than free speech? Now, again, this is from Nadine, this is her entire world, and I'm sure she has much to say about this. I have the whole world, and yeah. as I said earlier, n- these are difficult issues, and we just as there are people, including human rights activists in countries that support stifling hate speech, who oppose that in this country, including within the ACLU, including during the Skokie case in the 70s and Charlottesville now, there are very strong civil libertarians who disagree with what continues to be the ACLU position. I would be embarrassed if we did not have debate and dissent on these important issues. And what's interesting is after the reexamination that was called for by those individuals, the ACLU resoundingly reaffirmed its traditional position, but said we have to do a much better job of explaining it, which was exactly why well, I wrote my book. D- debate and dissent, the term you use, we at least do debate at Intelligence Squared. And uh, for, for people who might have stumbled into this podcast and not know about the rest of our program. What we do is put opposing views on stage, and they don't need to be popular. Uh, Often they're not, but we give them an airing, and we give them a test because there's somebody on the other side of the argument all the time. Um, I think I'm I'm almost certain we see in this conversation the beginning of a debate we're going to have to bring to the stage, and I hope that both of you can be part of that. Um, I don't want to get ahead of myself on the booking, but I just want to tell you both that um, we aim for robust intelligent conversation that's also civil and uh, respectful and the two of you did spectacularly well at that so thank you so much thank, thank you, you both very uh, much thank you Nadine always and uh, Nadine again Nadine Strassen you're a professor at New York Law uh, former president of the ACLU and your book is called Hate Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech Not uh, Censorship and Thane Rosenbaum novelist essayist law professor at NYU who has changed the title of your out- upcoming book to Saving Free Speech Ellipsis from Itself <laughs> alright thanks so much to folks, to learn more about Intelligence Squared or to hear the full Discourse Disruptor series, visit us online at iq2us.org. That's iq, the number two, us.org. Next episode, I'll be talking to economist Allison Schrager about her new book, An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. And for those of you who love a good Oxford-style debate, don't worry. We'll be announcing our fall season of debates very, very soon. You can learn about that by subscribing to our mailing list at iq2us.org to stay up to date. This special interview series is brought to you by Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. Our debates are generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Leah Matthau is Chief Content Officer. Shay O'Mara is Manager of Editorial Operations. Connor Kerfman is our Creative and Marketing Strategist. Aaron Dalton and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. This podcast was recorded at Carnegie Hall Recording Studios with the help and assistance of Leszek Maria Wojcik. Thanks very much. I'm John Donvan. We'll see you next time.